0: And um, you may have noticed up on the wall outside, uh, we're approaching our Easter uh, services, and um, we looked at Mark's Gospel back in the autumn, and we're going to pick up from where we left off. When we looked at Mark's Gospel earlier in the year, or sorry, late last year, we looked at the idea of Jesus being the servant. And these last few chapters of Mark's Gospel, we're now going to look at the idea of Jesus being the sacrifice. And uh, it's heading towards our Easter service. We're going to be covering, effectively, a week's worth over a few weeks. But uh, we have promotional leaflets, which have these symbols and signs on them, and these bits and pieces on them. You can read that quickly if you like. They'll be available, and we ask you to take them, to use them as invites for people. And we're going to present the gospel over the Easter period. So if you'd like to take those leaflets, give them away to family and friends. That would be fantastic. Pete, I'm just going to switch microphones. Thanks, buddy. So we're going to pick up from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 11 to verse 18. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus curses a fig tree, sorry, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing the distance of fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if he had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were there were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he caught them, he said, It is not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. And began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When you stepped inside the temple that Jesus steps inside, the first area you would go into is the court of the Gentiles. Or the Ephene, or the nations, I guess you'd say. This was the only part of the temple building that non-Jews were allowed the biggest part of the temple building, you had to go through it to get into the rest, and all the operations of the temple, all the business of the temple, was conducted there. And it was quite an operation. When Jesus walked in, he would have seen great throngs of people buying, selling animals, dozens of stores exchanging foreign currencies and money-changing tables, and there'd be thousands of people who flooded into Jerusalem all the time, to buy and sell animals for them to be sacrificed. And the ancient historian Josephus tells us that in one week over Passover, there were 255,000 lambs brought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. Dave is a farmer, that's quite hard to imagine that many lambs in one week in one place, isn't it? It's not like a cattle market that we may be imagine friendly. 255,000 animals being passed through. We have our trading dens. It was a bit like a combination of a trading den and an animal vending place. Just an extraordinary, tumultuous, confusing, busy place. And this was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and maybe encounter God or maybe to find God that was supposed to be what this place was for and Jesus walks in there looking at it and reacts angrily you might say and starts turning over temples and tables and you can imagine leaders rushing to him and saying what's going on why are you doing this and then he quotes this line from Isaiah he says My house will be called a house of prayer for all. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is for the Gentiles. And we are told that this, this statement, if you like, amazes those who heard it. And the reason why is this. It was popularly believed at a time that when the Messiah came that he would cleanse the temple. That actually he would cleanse their religion and actually he would purge the temple of foreigners, of anybody who doesn't quite fit, that it would be once again the pure Israel race would be the ones that inhabited the temple. And Jesus, it seems, comes into the midst of this and says, it's exactly the opposite to that. My house will be a house of the Gentiles. I.e. my house will be a prayer place for everyone. No longer just the chosen few. And this was both shocking and uncomfortable. Now for us in our multicultural society hopefully that's quite an acceptable thing. We think that's a good thing. That's That's a great thing that Jesus is doing here. But for them, well, that's quite tough. But there's something even more subversive that's going on here because Jesus was actually challenging the entire sacrificial system as well. See, the pagan, unwashed Gentiles couldn't go to God with prayer. They couldn't go directly to him with prayer. And... This, uh, this whole concept of changing that, well, that was amazing for so many people because the Jewish people, they knew the concept of the temple and the tabernacle. The story of the temple or the tabernacle starts way back in the Garden of Eden. The primary, if you like, the primal garden, which was this sanctuary, which is this place where the presence of God dwelled. It was this paradise. It was this place where nothing evil or deformed or bad could be, could exist. Because God's presence rested there. And in the presence of God, there was this perfect shalom. Absolute flourishing, absolute fulfillment, absolute joy, absolute bliss. But then these first humans, they decided that actually... They wanted to build their lives on something other than just God and let other things beside God give them ultimate meaning. And so paradise was lost. This place of Shalom was lost. And Adam and Eve are, are banished, if you like, from this garden. And as they leave this garden, as they look back from the garden, they turn around and they see this, this flaming sword. It says in Genesis 3, 24 guarding the entrance back to the garden this flaming sword that's just passing through and if you were to try and go back well you couldn't because you couldn't pass through the flaming sword for them turning from god had these dreadful consequences building their lives on other things has terrible consequences it's the same for us when we build our lives on power or status or acclaim or Maybe family or race or nationality. Those things, as we can look back over history, have caused conflict and wars and violence and poverty and disease and and death. And as we've trampled on others and we've trampled on the earth, things have decayed. And it's not just enough to say then... Can I, do you mind if I just go back into the presence? I've seen what it's like here. I don't really like it. I'd, I'd like to go back again. Because the sword's there. If you've been a victim of a crime, if you've been hurt badly by somebody else, if you've ever suffered violence, and the perpetrator says, to you, sorry, can't we just let it go? Well, that's not how it works, is it? Because there has to be some sense of justice. And it's the same in the realm of eternity sorry isn't just enough and we can't just jump back so something else is required a kind of payment or a kind of sacrifice or something that enables the things to be put right there's a cost to the damage there's a cost to the brokenness and this flaming sword that if you like separates Adam and separates us from God's presence of perfect shalom Eden if you like well that's there to exact justice and nobody can go back into the presence of the Lord unless they go through the sword unless they pay for what they've done wrong but none of us can survive that sword so how else will we get back to the presence of God and the question still remained for these people, despite the fact that they'd had a solution for many, many years, this sacrificial solution through the tabernacle and the temple. In the middle of the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. It was a small space. It was covered by a thick veil to kind of shield it or shield the people from the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Because God's immediate presence was fatal to human beings. And just once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highest priest could go inside, briefly, only if he carried a blood sacrifice. Because there was no way he could go without that, under the presence of the sword. And even this blood sacrifice was actually just a symbolic thing, and it wasn't actually adequate, really, to do the true atoning work. But... the tabernacle, the temple, the whole sacrificial system, well, it relied on these sacrifices for one day. But that was about it. That was the only access that anyone could get, and it was only for the high priest, and it was only for this just very limited few at a very special time. So for Jesus... To imply that the Gentiles could get access to the presence of God. Well, the people were amazed. And the prophets had kept promising this that someday God would cover the world as the waters cover the sea with his presence and we would be aware of it. The whole world would be this holy of holies, that we would be aware of it, that we would be walking with him. They promised that, but. People didn't want to see that, really. And the problem was, how would that happen? How would we all get past the sword? Or how would these people get past the sword? But in Revelation, John looks at the throne. It's this vision that John has. And he's looking at this throne as the place of ultimate power in the universe. And he looks there and he sees this lamb slaughtered. He sees Jesus slaughtered, the Lamb of God, the greatest royal trium- tribute or triumph, if you like. And he sees this sacrificial vision. He sees this death of all deaths. Because we understand now that this concept that Jesus was the sacrifice that enabled all of us to come into God's presence. We understand that. We understand that when he died, as we read in Mark 15 it is, that as he died, that veil of the Holy of Holies was actually torn apart, symbolic of the fact that now no longer is his glory shrouded from everyone. That Jesus passes through, if you like, that Eden gate where that sword of justice is, and the sword of justice falls on him... And it's, he is broken by this sword, but also the sword is broken at the same time. But clearly, those that upheld the temple, those that had brought into the temple, those that were the Jewish leaders, were not happy with this information, this news, this, this new revelation. It says, Jesus overturned tables. But actually, what was really shocking to them wasn't necessarily the tables. We may get upset about that, but what really upset them was his attack on the sacrificial system that provided many for them a good living, actually. But in this passage, he's predicting his death He's predicting the mechanism by which we might, as Gentiles, enter into the Holy of Holies. It's interesting that he says the first day he visited it, he went away, and then he came back again. And on his way back, we read this part about the fig tree. It's an odd story, maybe, you think, placed in the middle of this narrative. And it seems a bit mean that you would curse a fig tree. Maybe to our thinking, it feels a bit odd that someone would just curse a fig tree. What has the fig tree done to him, you might say? If we look closely, there's, there's an important fact here that actually helps us understand the temple story afterwards. A fig tree in the Middle East would have two seasons, two seasons of fruit, actually, and would bear these fruit, which you may have seen or may not have seen, on these stems. They would go green and then they would darken up. And the whole purpose of a fig tree was to produce fruit. And travellers would walk past and they would be multiplied many, many thousands of times across the countryside. And travellers would be able to walk past, pick them, contain good sugar, good water, really good nourishment for those that were travelling. But if you found a fig tree that was sprouting leaves but had no fruit on it you'd recognize that there was something wrong perhaps it'd look okay from a distance because it had the leaves but actually when you got close to it there was no fruit well often that would be an indication that there was sign of decay or maybe there was disease inside or maybe it was just not functioning as it should Growth without fruit is usually a sign of decay. What's really happening under the surface, or there's nothing happening under the surface. And I think Jesus, in this statement here, is talking, actually he's pronouncing what is going on in the temple right at that moment. first arrival at the temple he returned the next day and he gives this private if you like, object lesson I think he's talking about this idea of hollow religious or religiosity and the fig tree is effectively a visual aid see the fig tree is not actually doing the job that it was made for it's a pointed job and in many respects here we could see the tree as a as a metaphor for Israel for those claiming to be God's people but not bearing fruit Jesus was returning to this place who it was religiously really busy it was about the business if you like of God the religiosity the sacrifice the committees the noise, the people coming and going the transactions but there was very little fruit it would seem nobody was actually praying in the place that was supposed to be the place you prayed the place for All nations to be able to pray. See, there are many things that can appear as signs of belief. And these can grow without much heart, heart change. And we could be a really busy church with lots of activities, but without real heart change and without real fruit. Without real compassion, without real love, without real holiness. And Jesus curses the fruit tree and shuts it down. And the same day, he walks into the temple and he turns it over and he shuts it down. And he says, I want more than just appearance. What we want is substance. And you can only realize this. You can only do this when you understand what really I'm here for and what really God wants. You see, he wants all people gathered to him. All the nations gathered to him. He wants everybody to be able to pray and encounter the Spirit of God. He wants everybody able to come into the presence of the living God. It seems to me Jesus is saying that nothing you're doing right now echoes my father's heart. That's what he's saying in the temple. Nothing echoes my desire, what the prophets have written. Nothing echoes the fact that my father wants you to be able to encounter him in the holies of holies. As we look across these next few days over the next few weeks of Jesus' life, he reveals constantly the desire of the Father to connect with us, to us. But there is a cost. The sword of judgment has to be Broken, judgment has to be paid. This morning we're going to take communion together and we're going to reflect on just what the cross means that Jesus did as we see over these next few weeks. Pay that price, enabling us to enter into the Holy of Holies. It says at the end of the passage that the people were amazed and those that didn't like what they'd heard plotted to kill Christ. There's a great irony there, isn't there? Because as they plot to kill him, so they fulfill exactly what he came for. Sometimes religiously we don't understand what's going on right in front of us but we do understand that jesus's heart is even in this story that seems to be one full of anger and curse his heart is only that of the father's that he wants all people to be drawn to him in union and that's what we're going to celebrate now as we share communion together let's pray phil